0: This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 9, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices and serve it up in tiny little bite sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. Today we will be continuing our discussion of Amr ibn al As and his invasion of Egypt. Last week we pretty much simply covered the persecution of the Coptic Christians and the things that led up to the beginning of the invasion of Egypt by the Muslims. However, today. This week, inshallah, we will talk about the early battles of Amr ibn al As in Egypt, and we will see how successful he was in this campaign. Show notes, inshallah, will be available at com slash cyrus, C-Y-R-U-S. That is islamiclearningmaterials.com slash cyrus. And so, with that, let's get into the show. Here we go with the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 9. <laughs> when we left off before, we were discussing Amr ibn al as attempts to capture the fortified city of Babylon in modern-day Cairo in Egypt. However, the Roman Archbishop Cyrus had arrived at Babylon with many soldiers and despite Amr ibn al-As's best efforts, he wasn't able to break through the defenses at Babylon. So Amr decided if he couldn't get Babylon, he would try to distract Cyrus by attacking some of the unprotected cities in the area. And one of the ripest targets was the city of Fayyum, just across the Nile River. So in the month of May, in the year 640 of the Common Era, Amr ibn al-Az crossed the Nile River and began attacking the areas around the city of Babylon. His primary goal for the time being was to really get to the city of Fayyum. That was the wealthiest city other than Babylon that was within his reach. And we have mentioned the two primary reasons why Amr decided to leave Babylon alone. For one thing, he was losing forces every day by besieging Babylon. And secondly, He also had sent word to Omar ibn al-Khattab, the caliph of the Muslim world, to send reinforcements. By attacking the area surrounding Babylon, it would give time for Omar to send the reinforcements that Amr had requested. Therefore, from the months of May to June of the year 640, Amr and his forces rampaged through the Egyptian lands, causing as much havoc for the Roman government as he possibly could, slowly working his way towards the city of Fayun. Even though Amr had hoped to distract Cyrus from Babylon, ultimately The Romans knew what Ahmed was trying to do. They knew he was trying to go to Fayyum and they knew that he was trying to draw them out of Babylon. His path towards Fayyum was obvious. So Cyrus was able to send more reinforcements to Fayyum, which ultimately hindered Ahmed's progress. So despite Amr's intentions, he wasn't able to immediately capture Fayyum. However, he did manage to grab much needed resources for his forces by sacking the surrounding areas. This had the additional benefit also of keeping his soldiers active. His soldiers would remain in top fighting condition if they stayed on the warpath rather than just sitting outside the walls of Babylon while the Roman soldiers poured hot oil on them and threw catapults and shot arrows at them every single day. I understand that some people may be uncomfortable with the fact that Amr attacked villages where residents and citizens lived. We are perhaps under the assumption that no Muslim at this time ever committed any wrong. However, keep in mind that these villages were actually captured in the process of warfare. So Amr and all the other Muslim commanders at this time, they would defeat the village defenses and they would destroy the Roman defenses and then capture the city. In the process of capturing the city, according to the rules of warfare at that time, the people and their possessions became literally possessions of the victor of the Muslim invading armies. And so... This was not considered a war crime at that time. This was considered something that was legitimate warfare and the Muslims could expect the same thing to happen to them were the tables turned. Once again, all of this could have been avoided if simply the village elders or the village leaders capitulated to Ahmed and paid the jizya rather than face him in warfare. When they did that, it was legitimate warfare. And if the Muslims were victorious, and they usually were, then according to the rules of warfare at the time, the people and their possessions became the possessions of the Muslims. So by the month of June, 640, the first wave of reinforcements from Medina were beginning to arrive in Egypt. This first wave of reinforcements was headed by the great Sahaba, Zubair ibn al-Awam, and he came at the head of 4,000 troops. And coming behind him, but still several weeks away, were two more columns of 4,000 soldiers each. So when all was said and done, Amr ibn al-As could expect to have 15,000 soldiers under his command. And so now, with reinforcements finally coming in and with much-needed resources for his soldiers, Amr set up camp outside of the city of Heliopolis, which is modern-day Ain al-Shams, which is near Cairo. Strangely, however, for whatever reason, Either out of fear of Ahmed or simple incompetence, the Romans hadn't really done much to prevent Ahmed from rampaging through all of this territory. They really offered very little resistance. It was almost as if the Roman government had given up on their Egyptian and Coptic subjects. However, now that Ahmed and his army were sitting outside the walls of Heliopolis, which was almost completely undefended, Cyrus realized he was going to have to walk into Amr's plan. His soldiers would have to leave the city of Babylon and then meet the Muslims in the field to prevent the Muslims from attacking and capturing Heliopolis. Cyrus's plan, however, was that he would be able to meet Ahmed in battle, defeat him, and drive the Muslims from Egypt for good. Cyrus and his troops tried to slowly filter out of Babylon unnoticed by Ahmed, but Ahmed's spies saw everything that was happening and reported to him their every movement. So Ahmed was able to plan accordingly based on Cyrus's movements. So, Amr planned to trick Cyrus in a very intelligent way, at least militarily. Amr decided to make Cyrus think he was going to meet him in battle. And So, the bulk of Amr's force, the plan was to go out and face Cyrus's forces in open battle in the open field. However, Amr broke off a segment of his forces and sent them off into the hills overlooking the plain where the battle was expected to take place. And Then he broke off another segment of his army and sent them into one of those abandoned villages that the Muslims had ransacked earlier. And so when all that planning was done, Amr led the main body of his soldiers out away from Heliopolis to meet Cyrus' forces in the field in July of 640 CE. Cyrus's forces, they were mostly archers and spearmen with some light cavalry. However, these lightly armored soldiers were really no match for armored soldiers, at least not one-to-one. Even though they outnumbered the Muslims, Amr's soldiers were veterans who had seen battle at Yarmouk and some of them even in Khodesia. So these were hardened, trained soldiers, veteran soldiers who wouldn't wilt easily under the strain of battle. Therefore, even though their numbers were less, Amr really had the stronger fighting force. Most of Cyrus' soldiers were used to persecuting and fighting fairly weak and defenseless Coptic Christians. They had not faced anything like the soldiers in Armor's army. Finally, the two sides met in battle and the battle got very, very hot and difficult for both sides. Armored soldiers were more experienced and better disciplined, however that was balanced off by the Romans' superior numbers. And so for several hours the battle was pretty much a stalemate until finally Armored gave the signal and that detachment that he had sent off into the hills overlooking the plain came swooping down and hit the Romans from behind. The Romans were caught off guard and found themselves fighting on two flanks, both the army coming from the hill in the back and Armor's primary detachment to their front. This caused confusion in the Roman ranks and they eventually just broke and ran for their lives. However, they ran straight for the abandoned village where Armor's third detachment was lying in wait for them. So the fleeing, frightened Roman soldiers run into the village, smack into Amr's detachment. The Romans thought they were fighting three different armies and ultimately they were simply torn to pieces. The Battle of Heliopolis, this battle, also known as the Battle of of Ainul Shams, is one of the most spectacular strategic victories of the early Muslim conquests the surviving Roman soldiers fled back to Babylon and reported to Cyrus about their crushing defeat. And Cyrus realized that this city that had seemed so impenetrable just two months earlier was now suddenly almost completely defenseless. The news of this victory by the Muslims sent shockwaves of panic throughout Egypt. The victory also had two unintentional consequences. First of all, the long persecuted Coptic Christians began to rise up against their Roman oppressors. Seeing the government and the military of the Romans so weakened must have emboldened the Coptic Christians and they decided this was their chance to get back at these people who had been persecuting for so many years. Furthermore, many Coptic Christians worked alongside the Muslims to help facilitate the defeat of the Romans. The second unintended consequence was that several of the Roman garrisons and fortresses began to give up without even putting up much of a fight. Some of them put up a nominal resistance against Amr's forces, but most of them simply abandoned their post. The Battle of Heliopolis took place in July 640. By December of 640, Amr ibn al-As had captured much of the region. He had captured Heliopolis, Fayyum, Abuit, and Babylon. All of these cities fell to Amr without even putting up much of a fight. He captured them with very, very little effort. In fact, Cyrus himself the archbishop, the great persecutor of the Copts, he ultimately capitulated and agreed to pay jizya to Amr ibn al-As. The agreement, however, was that Amr would cease his conquest of Egypt and give the Romans peace. During the negotiations of this peace treaty and the Jizya payments, Cyrus spent a lot of time in the Muslim camps and he had an opportunity to observe the ways of the Muslims. And here's a quote of what he saw. Quote, We have seen a people who prefer death to life and humility to pride. They sit in the dust and they take their meals on horseback. Their commander is one of themselves. There is no distinction or rank among them. They have fixed hours of prayer at which all pray, first washing their hands and feet, and they pray with reverence. Now, while that quote from Cyrus is very positive in many respects, don't think too highly of Cyrus. The man was a bigot. Now, here's why I say Cyrus was a bigot. During these negotiations, Amr has sent one of the closest companions to Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, a man named Ubada ibn Samit. Amr has sent this man to discuss the terms of the deal. With Cyrus. Obada ibn Samit was from among the Ansars, the helpers from Medina. Obada ibn Samit, he had taken Shahada even before his commander, Amr ibn al-As. Obada ibn Samit had taken Shahada before the Hijra. He was one of those first early Muslims from Medina to make Hajj to Mecca and take Shahada at the hands of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam during the pledge of of Al-Aqaba, Urbadi ibn Samit was one of the first Muslims, first at least 300 people to accept Islam. After Ubadah ibn Samit had accepted Islam at the hands of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, remember before the Hijra when the Prophet was still being persecuted in Mecca, Ubadah ibn Samit, and we mentioned a similar story with the companion Muad ibn Jabal, Ubadah ibn Samit had gone back to Medina and spread the religion of Islam amongst his family members as well. So, Ubadah ibn Samit and the previous companion that we spoke of, Mu'ad ibn Jabal, these were some of the earliest Ansars who were responsible for making Medina possible for the Prophet sallam, and the Muhajirun. However, even though Ubadah ibn Samit was an Arab, he must have been a dark skinned Arab. And when he went, to meet with Cyrus to discuss the terms of the peace treaty, Cyrus initially refused to speak to him. Let's hear a quote regarding the first meeting between Obada ibn Samit and Cyrus, the Archbishop of Rome. Now, when we read this passage, understand that the phrase al-mukaukas is the Arabic term for Archbishop. So, when you hear that phrase, al Mukalkas, think Archbishop, think Cyrus. Quote, when Obada was ushered into the presence of al Mukalkas, the latter was shocked and exclaimed, Take away that black man. I can have no discussion with him. But the Arabs explained that Obada was one of their most trusted and capable leaders and that Amr had commissioned him personally to treat with the Romani. To the archbishop's further astonishment, they added that they held Negroes and white men in equal respect, that they judged a man by his character, not his color. And Obada, when bidden to speak gently so as not to frighten the delicate prelate, replied, There are a thousand blacks, as black as myself, among our companions. I and they would be ready each to meet and fight a hundred enemies together. We live only to fight for God and to follow his will. We care not for wealth, so long as we have wherewithal to stay our hunger and to clothe our bodies. This world is nothing to us. The next world is all. This profession of piety moved the archbishop. Do you hear this? he said to his companions. I much fear that God has sent these men to devastate the world. Then, turning to Obada, he remarked, I have listened, good sir, to your account of yourself and your comrades, and I understand why your arms so far have prevailed. Unquote. And just so you know, that quote does not come from a book written by Muslims nor by modern Muslim apologists. That book was written in the early 1900s by a very anti-muslim european historian in any case the peace treaty was made and the terms of the jizya were established however when word got back to emperor heraclius of cyrus's agreement he was not pleased at all and he immediately recalled the archbishop to constantinople Heraclius was furious that Cyrus had made this agreement with the Muslims and he stripped Cyrus of his rank and his title and his position and sent him into exile. Despite these strong moves by Heraclius, they ultimately backfired on him. Cyrus had made these negotiations with the Muslims in order to prevent Amr ibn al-As and his army from attacking the major, the most important city in Egypt, at the time at least, Alexandria. However, when the Muslims heard that Heraclius had rejected the peace treaty, this meant that they were still at war. This meant the terms were no longer in effect. Therefore, the Muslims prepared to continue their march across Egypt straight for Alexandria. And so, by this period of time, December of the year 640, the Muslims controlled pretty much the entire Nile Delta region of Egypt. Then, as now, this was the most important part of Egypt, both strategically and economically. Heraclius prepared to launch another army against the Muslims in Egypt, hoping to push them back and stop Amr's invasion. However, the Romans experienced a major setback. Emperor Heraclius died. And when he died, his son, Constantine III, was crowned as the new emperor with his half-brother, whose name was Heraclons, as next in line. Unfortunately for the Byzantine Empire, young Emperor Constantine III died a mere four months later from tuberculosis. A rumor persisted throughout the empire that he was actually poisoned by his stepmother, the mother of his half-brother, a woman named Martina. After Emperor Constantine III died, His half-brother Heraclinus became the emperor, but he was only 15 years old and he was only emperor for a few months. The rumors and suspicion about him and his mother grew to the point where eventually he was overthrown by the army. Both son and mother had their noses cut off and their tongues cut out and they were banished to the island of Rhodes. The dethroned emperor died just a few months later. Finally, Constantine III's son, Constans II, was crowned emperor and this brought some stability to the Roman Empire. But this stability did little to stop Amr ibn al-As and his forces who continued to push towards Alexandria on the Mediterranean coast. Alhamdulillah, I hope you enjoyed that show and I hope you found it beneficial and useful. Just want to continue what we have been doing for the past couple of weeks as we've ended these shows discussing my background as well as the background to this podcast, the Islamic History Podcast. And I guess today we will actually go over the history of the Islamic History Podcast. It all really begins with the website com, which I began in 2006 in order to teach Islamic history. But over the years, ilm as I like to call it, over the years, it went away from Islamic history and became a general islamic knowledge website by late 2011 actually i was really starting to get interested in podcasting i had looked at it before 2011 but the steps were very difficult it seemed to involve a lot of hand coding but by 2011 i have found a podcast tutorial that really made everything very simple and so i followed the steps of this tutorial and a few months later, I had actually recorded my first episode of my podcast, which at that time I called The Elm Show. And the first episode of The Elm Show aired in February 2012. And fortunately for you, or perhaps unfortunately for you, I happen to have a clip of that show. Here we
1: go. Assalamu wa rahmatullah. Thank you for tuning in to The Elm Show from islamiclearningmaterials.com this is the official podcast from islamiclearningmaterials.com and I'm your host the founder of islamiclearningmaterials.com Abu Ibrahim Ismail now today a few things I want to talk about uh, two general things I want to talk about the first thing will be uh, I want to give a little talk about the basics of Islamic fiqh Uh, Islamic fiqh is often translated as Islamic law but I prefer to call it more like um, Islamic legal jurisprudence because it it really talks about how Islamic fiqh is really about how Islamic law is derived, not necessarily the law in and of itself. But you know, without getting into too much of the technicality, I just want to give a basic rundown of the basics of uh fiqh in Islam. Alright, and then inshallah I want to talk a little bit about um Black History Month because we're in the middle of February and February 2012 and this is Black History Month um here in the United States and so I want to talk a little bit about this and what it means for Muslims uh what my thoughts are on the entire issue and then at the end um I have a little recording that I made uh several years ago about the crusades you know the crusades when the um Europeans uh Christian Europeans came down into uh the Muslims the Muslim lands of the Middle East and and ransacked the most of the Muslim lands eventually resulting in the conquest of Jerusalem Now, wasn't that interesting? So I did a few episodes,
0: but a lot of it and left it alone until late 2012. And there were lots of reasons I really hadn't had the, I guess, fortification and And training to do this, but primarily I really didn't have very good equipment. I was using a very janky ten dollar Logitech microphone, and the sound quality of that early podcast was pretty darn bad. So I didn't have half the stuff I have now. I, I don't have a super great technical setup right now, but alhamdulillah, it is pretty darn good. By late 2012, I had moved back to Atlanta. Before this, I was living in Birmingham, Alabama. But I have moved back to Atlanta and I began recording podcasts again, but I sort of moved away from Islamic studies and began to focus more on Islamic topics, but not Islamic studies. So things like relationships from a Muslim perspective, of course, uh, from Things like Quran and current events, stuff like that. So that's kind of what I began to focus on in this second iteration of the podcast called The Um Show. It was the same thing, just I had kind of evolved into things I wanted to talk about. So this is now, once again, late 2012, and things were going okay. Still didn't have really good uh, equipment yet, but things finally started turning around about March or April of 2013. And that's when I finally got my first good mic, an Audio-Technica 2100 usb slash xlr microphone which i still use by the way i still have that same microphone it still works good matter of fact i have two of them now and that's what i'm talking on right now it's not the same one it's a newer one but still essentially the same thing this microphone is very good i like it and it's very flexible but alhamdulillah anyway the point is my skills began to get much better but really it was in ramadan of 2013 that I finally got into the, the flow and the hang of this whole podcasting thing. See, in Ramadan of 2013, I gave myself a challenge. I really wanted to challenge myself. And I decided to record one episode every day for the entire month of Ramadan. Yes, so for 2013, I recorded one new episode of the Elm Show, as it was at the time, every single day for 30 days straight. And Alhamdulillah, I did complete the challenge. And by the end of the month of Ramadan 2013, I was very happy very comfortable and familiar with the whole podcasting thing. I had begun to find my voice. I knew the equipment well. I had developed my own editing techniques. It was, alhamdulillah, much better. And things continued to progress after that, of course. It was also during this string of 30 straight episodes that I recorded my first full-length history episodes. At that point in time, it was about the Sahaba Wahshi Ibn Harb, who was responsible for both the deaths of Hamza, the uncle of prophet muhammad and then after he became muslim he was also responsible for the death of musaylam al Khadab. and you can hear that entire story the all of the episodes is about five episodes you can hear them all on the Elm um club and it covers the growth of islam from the, its beginnings in mecca all the way through the ridda wars but it does it from Wahshi ibn harb's perspective and so there will be some overlap in what we covered in episode one of two, one, two, and three of this season of the Islamic History Podcast. But there will be many things that will not be covered in that, such as the such as wars between the Prophet and the, the Quraysh during his time in Medina. So, so after Ramadan 2013, uh, things began to change for me personally. I went through a few personal crises or changes of life. I don't know how else to say it. For one thing, there's a masjid that I was involved in here in Atlanta and got involved in some really ugly masjid politics and I kind of stepped away from the whole masjid scene for a while. Another thing that happened in this latter part of 2013 was that my mother died in October 2013 and that was a pretty big blow for me and... While that was a very difficult thing, Alhamdulillah, um a good thing happened in December of twenty thirteen. A lot of stuff happened in twenty thirteen, obviously. Very pivotal year in my life. Anyway, in December of twenty thirteen, I discovered my long lost father. I, I'm not joking, I really discovered my long lost father in the winter of twenty thirteen, December 9th 2013 long story it is discussed in some of the older episodes which are in the archives which will soon be uploaded to the elm club if you are ever interested in it by 2014 i decided that i wanted to change the elm show around a little bit and one of the main things i wanted to change was the name so i changed it from the elm show to becoming a better muslim now the podcast was still primarily about giving advice primarily islamic advice and discussing various islamic topics whole smorgasbord of things there was really not much rhyme and reason i try to keep things on a positive note but for the most part i was pretty much just encouraging the audience to be good Muslims, and to try to live their lives according to the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And by this time, uh, 2014, I was doing the show regularly, almost every single week on a regular basis, had a strong following. It wasn't a very large following, but they were fairly loyal. I decided to branch out a little bit, and so I started two other podcasts, one called Romantic Muslim, and guess you can kind of figure out what that was all about mostly about relationships and stuff and another one called serious Sirah, which was of course about the life of prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam in the uh, fall of 2014 i made hajj in september 2014 i even recorded a few episodes while on hajj but by the end of the year by the end of 2014 the show the becoming a better muslim at least in my opinion was beginning to run out of steam and I I pretty much categorized it or I pretty much explained it by saying I had run out of ways to tell people to be a good Muslim. I really couldn't do much more. I could really couldn't figure out many more ways of saying be a good Muslim. It was just it wasn't any anymore. And I had always wanted to do a history podcast. But since I already had three podcasts going, uh, becoming a better Muslim, or romantic Muslim and then Siddharth Siddharth. It was just a little bit too much. I didn't have the time to make Uh, a history podcast. So in early 2015, I made a decision, a very momentous decision. I changed Becoming a Better Muslim, which used to be the Elm Show. I changed it to a fully Islamic history podcast. I hadn't changed the name yet, but I did change my focus from simply giving advice to being only about Islamic history. And this was pretty tough at first, as I believe I... It alienated a lot of my listeners and I lost a lot of the followers, these guys who I had built up since perhaps 2012, maybe two, three years now. I lost many people doing that, but it was something that I felt just had to be done. I had to kind of follow my heart in this respect. And after lots of fits and starts and trying to get it all right, I finally relaunched the podcast in April 2015 as the Islamic History Podcast. And if you were listening back then, it's fine and it's still available now. The first season of the Islamic History Podcast was about history from the Quran. We've kind of breezed through the history of the Islamic History Podcast, but as you can see, there have been quite a few changes in this show. But now that we've gotten all caught up on the history of the Islamic History Podcast, let's go ahead and type a few notes here want to remind you, as I mentioned in the last episode, that Sister Subhana Wahaj, the daughter of Imam Suraj Wahaj, has written several articles for the website islamiclearningmaterials.com. The most recent of which is entitled, Is the Mosque a Place for Children? So if you think that is an article you would be interested in reading, definitely click on the link in the show notes, which you can find at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash islamiclearningmaterials.com cyrus c-y-r-u-s we'll have links to everything links to this article Links to the episode I mentioned, links to the Elm Club if you feel like joining in. Speaking of the Elm Club, as I mentioned, inshallah, I will soon be adding most of these older shows that used to be the Elm Show and Becoming a Better Muslim. And I'm going to start adding those to the Elm Club. It's going to take some time. It does take time to upload a couple hundred shows to the cloud and get them connected to the website. But I will do that, inshallah, over time. Uh, I've also added two new khutbahs to the Elm Club, which you can find find the uh, two videos of khutbahs that I've added. They're videos, by the way, not audio. They're called Piety, Trust, and Divorce and links the topics of piety, trust, and divorce into one succinct topic. Hopefully, I try my best to do that. Another one called The End of Revelation, which discusses the seemingly controversial Surah Tawbah. Links to all these things will be available in the show notes Which will be at IslamicLearningMaterials.com So now that we have all that I'd like to encourage you once again To subscribe to the show on iTunes And we are going to bounce on out of here With this really beautiful nasheed Called No God But Allah By Nadeem Muhammad So until next time assalamu alaikum Wa rahmatullahi wa <laughs>
2: La la ilaha la To something, so let us pray and let us thank Him for each day. Let us pray, let us thank him for Yeah.